This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Rolf Nelson. And me, Joe Hardy. Welcome to the show. All right. So the topic of our show this week is willpower and self-control. The idea we're going to be discussing is ego depletion. Is it a thing? Is it not a thing? The idea is when you're doing something that requires a lot of willpower or mental effort to do something that maybe you don't want to do, but you should do, that is a resource that can be depleted. And over some exertion of that resource, you might uh, find that it's harder to do something later that requires willpower after you just did something hard. The name of the paper that we're directly discussing is one called Why Self-Control Seems But May Not Be Limited. This is by Michael Inslick, Brandon Schermichael, and C. Neil McRae, published in 2015, and it essentially proposes a different way of thinking about the concept of resources for willpower or ego depletion. Right. And so I think to get into this, you know, uh, we can start from a number of different directions, but maybe the place to start is to talk about the original finding that led to this direction in research and also that maybe a little bit about the resource model uh, associated with that. Right. So originally this is based on a paper from 1998 and a series of other pretty popular or pretty uh, well-cited studies on this concept of ego depletion. And it was done by a researcher called Roy Baumeister, who is a an extremely highly cited social psychologist, personality psychologist. He's done a bunch of other things on the self, on other interesting topics that I think we would take to, uh, consciousness, free will. So he proposed this idea of ego depletion. If you expend your thought processes, if you expend some mental energy on one process, one hard decision, then you'll have limited ability to stave off any temptation later. So his experiment initially, you get a choice of eating radishes or chocolate. So there's a temptation right there. If you exert the, the idea is if you exert the energy to resist the chocolates and you choose the radishes, it's going to be harder to resist something later. And it's going to be more difficult to carry out complex cognition at a later point. Right, exactly. So, you know, the in that setup, he had students come into a laboratory where they had been baking cookies, chocolate chip cookies, and, and so that they describe in the paper that there's an aroma of baking cookies in in the room, and there's a plate of chocolate chip cookies and there's a plate of radishes. And if you're in group 1, you're told to only eat the radishes and don't eat the cookies. And if you're in group two, you're allowed to eat the cookies. And then there's a control group of not eating anything. And so the idea is that it's kind of nasty to sit there and eat a bunch of radishes uh, that you don't really want to eat when there's a plate of delicious, freshly baked chocolate chip cookies sitting right there. And it requires some exertion of, of the willpower, self-control. Later, after that, you're sort of tired of from this, the, the, this you've exercised this willpower and the resource of willpower is now fatigued or tired and anything that requires that type of conscious control later will be harder. So in this case, they just had students work on unsolvable anagrams. Uh, so these word puzzles that couldn't be solved and they just wanted to see how long they would persist at the task. The students who had eaten the radishes lasted about eight minutes uh, on this unsolvable task, and the students who ate the cookies lasted more like 19 minutes. And actually, the control group lasted even a little bit longer on average, maybe closer to 20 minutes. Right. So it's obviously a kind of metaphor because we don't necessarily expect that you can directly observe your willpower and that you've got more willpower right now or you've got less willpower. So this is something that they're inferring from the experiment. They've got this theoretical concept of willpower or I guess ego as a limited resource and you use it on one thing you have less for another 
this is a cool experiment for sure. I think a lot of people got super excited about this idea. It has so many practical implications, right? You know, you've got a limited amount of thinking ability, of cognitive ability. You might as well use it on the stuff that's important. Don't waste your anxiety or your uh, decision-making processes on the little stuff. Save them for the big stuff, right? And, you know, if you're dieting and you're, you're tempted by tasty foods all the time, this points the way to, you know, you can think of ways that you could increase willpower or that you could avoid temptation in the right sort of way. So super interesting experiment. Yeah, and there, it, there was a number of different experiments that kind of followed up off of this that were similar in nature, all in the same flow of you first do something that requires some exertion of inhibitory control, willpower, executive function, what have you. And I think that we'll get into that a little bit later because I think wh what exactly you're doing might actually be tapping different processes or abilities or resources. So I think that the, I think this is not a, homo a homogeneous set of experiments, and I think that's part of the problem. But I think, it, it, to your point, it is a very cool idea, and I think there's something there for sure. So I think it's definitely worth delving into. And, and it's also uh, some... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, finish, yeah. I was just going to say that it's something that's also gotten into the popular culture as a concept. So it's one of those psychology concepts that's broken through. And I've even read accounts that, for example, President Obama and Mark Zuckerberg use this concept in their lives by always wearing the same clothes or same basic outfit every day so that they would have to expend less mental energy on making that decision and have more left over for other thoughts. <laughs> now, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I think, yeah. I, <laughs> I, think it, I think the fact that they did that is, is true. And Einstein also, right, this is, a, I had heard this previously about Einstein, like even before this became a, a pop culture meme, that is in some sense probably true. Uh, but I don't know that it's necessarily directly related to ego depletion. Well, I think the thing that it is most closely related to is maybe selective laziness, which is probably the smartest thing you can do. Be as lazy as possible on the stuff that isn't as important. And I, I love the idea of having a uniform and you don't have to think about the clothes that you wear. The, the one thing that I do is I have two kinds of socks. I have black socks and white socks. When enough of them get holes in them, I just buy a whole bunch more black socks and a whole bunch more white socks and throw the rest away. Then you don't have to worry about pairing socks. Saves you so much time. I wouldn't say that it salvages my ego or any of that <laughs> stuff. It's just, but it's selective laziness. Is yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, I totally agree. And I, I, you know, I do the same thing. I have this, the same basic style of jeans that I always wear. I've got really only got two pairs. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know that i wear to work and no one notices you know uh that i can tell well now they'll notice because they if they listen to this but it, it does it is a savings there of just time and effort and i i talk about this idea of decision fatigue sometimes yeah when you have to make a lot of decisions it gets tiring if that's one less decision that you have to make all the better yeah, I I know that um, Barry Schwartz and some other researchers have linked this kind of stuff up to even as much as depression, that when people have too many choices that they have to make and there's too many sort of an overwhelming number of options on the table that it can lead to all this regret about not getting the stuff that you didn't pick. And you know, it's just sort of cognitively overwhelming. I think probably the place where this may be most familiar to most people is getting work done in the, you know, in the workplace that you, you have a, a bunch of tasks that you have to do for work. And initially you start out, you know, you can just kind of pick things up and you can churn through everything. But after a while, your motivation might wane a little bit. You may be less inclined to keep working on the hardest stuff and more interested in well, not doing anything, right? This right. Is your motivation, just as your motivation wanes after a time. Yeah, so you might switch back to looking at Facebook or whatever it is that you do to entertain yourself in you between to, hard yeah. tasks. You need to refresh yourself in a way. Right. If you think about it in terms of the resource model, which is, I think, the most intuitive way to think about it and the way that the original researchers were really coming at it, Baumeister et al., it kind of makes sense from the perspective of if you're exercising this muscle of cognitive effort, 
and then it gets tired. You take a little break, and then you feel better, and you come back. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and the one one other thing that I think this links up with that people might be familiar with is um, Mishkin's marshmallow studies. So, you know, years before the Baumeister experiments, the studies were young children could either eat one marshmallow now or you can wait a couple minutes and then you can get two marshmallows and you know this finding that the ability to delay gratification and to sort of work on waiting for a larger reward is a really important factor in later development this is something that i think's pervaded national consciousness too is that willpower is an important factor for success in the world delayed gratification especially and some kind of self-control Right, exactly. And you know, it might it makes sense to dive in a little bit now into what we mean by self-control and be a little bit specific because it matters a, uh, a bit when you, when we talk about this. And and every, you know, different researchers define these things differently. And I think we have a very good sense of the intuitive concept of self-control. Basically means you're preventing yourself from doing something that you want to do in the moment and doing something that you should do or have to do instead. Yeah. Yeah. And it's closely related to the concepts of executive function, abilities like task switching, working memory, and inhibition. And I think in this case, it's most closely related to the concept in cognitive psychology of inhibition. You're inhibiting a dominant or prepotent response, something that you would normally automatically just do, preventing yourself from doing it. From this point of view, I guess the Freudian term, if people want to map this on, I'm hesitant to, to talk about Freud, I guess. Because I think most... it's fun. I think it's fun in this case because I think, uh, yeah, they, they brought it up. <laughs> yeah, they brought it up. up. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's called ego depletion, right? So, yeah. but there is something interesting about, okay, so Freud thinks about this sort of thing as the id, the ego, and the superego. So the id is just this animal nature that just wants immediate gratification on everything it does. And then you've got the superego, that sort of better angels of your nature that look down and say, no, 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 you should wait and exercise prudence and all of this stuff. So that's how it would be characterized in Freudian terminology that got immediate gratification. Then you've got waiting around for something later on that's, that's going to be better for you. And you know, you kind of know that it is, but you still want that now. That's uh, that form of, uh, of inhibition. What's interesting about this is that the way that inhibition is studied in the laboratory is often quite different. The types of tasks that cognitive psychologists use in the laboratory to study inhibition are things like the Stroop task, for example. Yeah. You want to to describe the Stroop task? Yeah. So the Stroop task is something that people might have seen before. When you've got a, a word that's a color word like red or green or blue, and it itself has a color. So you could have the word red printed in red color, or it could be printed in green color. And the basic finding is people are slower to name the colors when the word is different. So there's this conflict. The idea is that you're showing some ability to inhibit that word from getting through if you can just name the colors and ignore the word itself. That's right, exactly. So the ability to do the task requires inhibitory control and your speed at doing the task is a measure of your inhibitory power or you know, the strength of that ability in, in you. Yeah, you're showing some, it's like an ability to restrain yourself from something kind of interfering with uh, what you're thinking or what you're perceiving. Yes, exactly. Now, this is a situation where it's true that, you know, this is a difficult task. So if you do it, you immediately get the, the feeling and the intuition that, yeah, I have to inhibit this dominant response, no doubt. But it doesn't feel to me this, like the same thing as not e- eating a chocolate chip cookie. Why is that? One thing that feels different to me about it is that in the case of the chocolate chip cookie, I want the chocolate chip cookie. Right. <laughs> I, you, you, know, don't want to say, you don't want to say the other word. You kind of are aware that you're, not, you're trying not to say that other word. Right. I, I've been told to do so by a researcher. I have some motivation to do so because I don't know, I there's some social pressure or I maybe I'm given a reward even in certain circumstances. Usually it's more just the social pressure of wanting to be good at whatever it is that you're doing. Right. And uh, 
it's somehow less intrinsically rewarding than eating a delicious chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, there's no, uh, it doesn't feel like there's any internal conflict about what's the, you know, there's no angel or devil on the shoulder. There's no, you know, what, what should I be doing and what do I want to do? Is there a difference between those kinds of things? Yeah, and the radish and chocolate chip cookie thing, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. Right, exactly. And it's clear there's no... There's no processing power that re is required to to figure out which is the correct response. So in some ways, they're almost not even the same thing at all, really, right? I mean, in one case, it's all about processing power of actually determining yeah. which is the correct answer. And in the other case, it's merely choosing the so-called correct answer when you don't want to. Yeah, but I mean, they say, there seems to be something closely related about them, too, in that it You're not seems... doing the automatic thing. Yeah. The, or the most dominant or prepotent response. I mean, it's the case that people who have frontal cortex damage, so to their prefrontal lobe, that seems to to cause a lot of this inhibitory stuff, I think have problems with, with stroop tasks, you know, these short kinds of tasks like that, but also with control impulse control in general. So maybe that's one of the ways that people are mapping this together related to brain areas that appear to be involved in both kinds of self-control. Yeah, exactly. So the frontal lobes are involved in executive functions broadly. Prefrontal cortex is important for self-control and inhibition, etc. It does a lot of other things. So other ways that you would decide that these things were the same thing or different things, right? So how else would you decide that they were the same or different? Whether or not that the kind of inhibition stuff that they do in a Stroop task versus the radish and cookie. Right. You could do uh, a factor analysis, right? You could look at all the people, thousands and thousands of people, and you could measure them on both tasks. So people who are poor at the Stroop task are also super tempted by the cookie and rarely eat the radish. Or the marshmallow task, similar. Or the marshmallow right? task. The problem with that is that having done some of that kind of thing with l relatively large numbers of participants, what you find is uh, this really kind of unsatisfying fact, which is that the people who are, tend to be good at these types of laboratory tasks tend to be good at all of the different laboratory type tasks. Being good at taking a test is all about figuring out what the, what the test maker wants you to do mm -hmm. and then also being motivated to, to do it. Oh. I think that explains all of, all of that correlation. That's a big theory. It is. So I, I think basically then the, the, the idea of correlating performance on an inhibition task and you know, like the Stroop task or the flanker task and whether or not you're going to eat the marshmallow is not going to help you determining whether they're the same thing or not. I, I think knocking out a brain region and seeing if it uh, destroys both is a little bit better, but I, I think you'll, we'll find that if we look at that closely that the evidence is quite mixed. And then if you look at which areas are activated doing the task is also interesting, but also, of course, fraught as in, in ways that we know. Well, this is a tough question. I don't know if it's something we can figure out. Just yeah, we're not going to solve it here. But let's just say that, that, that there's that, that we're possibly not talking about the same construct across all of these different studies, and that might be part of the problem. But well, I think that, it's I worth... mean that is it is something that I hadn't thought as much about as to what extent those two things are related. The kind of quick inhibition and then just sort of overall general willpower as people think about it in everyday life. Right. And that, even then, even if you, even if we, and then I think there's a third thing, which is the close thing, the, the decision fatigue. I don't think that that's the same thing as either of the other two, right? Because what, what, if I'm trying to spend time deciding whether or not I'm going to wear this pair of pants or that pair of pants, sure, it takes time. If I'm stressed out about the decision, because for whatever reason, I think I might not look good in these pants, but I might look better in these pants, but I'm not sure and I care then that could cause me some anxiety for sure, right? And that anxiety might be resource depleting, cognitively depleting, emotionally depleting, but it's not, I have no, there's no sense in which it requires inhibition. Mm. No, I'm not, what am I inhibiting? I'm not inhibiting anything. At the end of the day, I just need to put on pants. <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm gonna put on pants, right, either way. <laughs> it's just choosing which pants to put on requires some energy, but it's like, it's not the same. I don't feel like that would even be pulling from the same pool as the pool of like not eating the cookies. Well, you do have to inhibit the other pair of pants. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah, exactly. That's true. It's a morass. It's like a it rabbit is. hole. It right is. There. It is a rabbit hole. 
it is a rabbit hole. But I, I think we can move forward in the sense that if we take, we have to limit ourselves here a little bit, though, I think, to, to make progress. Because what I liked about the, the why self-control seems but may not be limited paper is that it presents what, what I would call self-control, which to me makes does is something that makes sense, which is you are actively not doing something that you want to do because you know that it will help you out to not do it. Do, or you are doing something that you don't want to do for the same reason. It just feels more tractable. You've got two different competing things that you want. They just are operating at different timescales. Yeah, and I think it's it's really closely, I mean, people talk about self-control, and, and I think it's closely related to this idea of willpower, which is really totally connected to the idea of will itself. You free Like free will. Free will, right, free will. Because if you cannot prevent yourself from doing something that you know that you should not do and that will be harmful to you by doing it, that starts to feel like you don't have free will. Does it feel like a cop-out at times, though? Because it's easy to say, oh, I just lost my willpower or it just, you know, my willpower just kind of faded or you know, that person doesn't have enough willpower. You're kind of pointing to this thing that you don't ultimately know if that's the best way to explain it. It can be sort of giving up when there might be a better account of how it works. No, I, that, that, I, that makes sense. I agree. Well, I think let's look at it in the, in the context of this uh, resource versus you know, this other model. And then I think it might, might lead to some, some new thoughts. Okay, so let's, uh, maybe we can think about some of the reasons why thinking of willpower as a resource is not supported by uh, the literature. Some of the things that they cite here are the ideas that you can regenerate some of this by engaging in some activities that you like. So people who smoke cigarettes can seemingly regain some willpower by taking a break and having a smoke. People who are uh, watching your favorite TV program can seemingly regenerate this. And then, you know, other, other sorts of activities, just affirming some core value that you hold or prayer seems like it might be something that can defend against these reductions in self-control. So this seems to, or at least these authors cite this as a reason to not take willpower as being a resource, that if you can just suggest that you have more self-control, then, then it doesn't seem like it's a limited, it's a limited process if you can regenerate it so easily. That's right. Yeah, it, it, you can regenerate it. You can also affect it based on framing. So framing, depending, right. Depending on how you frame the problem, you can impact the apparent amount of this resource, which which would kind of go against the idea of a resource. Especially if you think about, yeah, I think one of the things about the resource model that, that got caught up into it right away was this idea that the resource is itself measurable as being related to the level of blood glucose. And that was, you know, the idea that if you drank a sugary drink after doing something that was uh, straining your, your self-control or, or your uh, willpower, that you would somehow be protected a bit against this uh, depletion. Yeah, to me, that feels like a misleading way to think about it. Unless you find that it's 100% related to glucose, that all willpower is, is just reducing energy that's available to your brain. And it turns out you just have glucose and you can have as much willpower as you want, which I don't think is the case. I think that may be a misleading way to think about it because it sort of mixes two modes of, you know, when we're thinking about a psychological process, it's an abstraction and it's, it's something that's going to be much more complicated and instantiated in a, in a pretty sophisticated way in your brain. Thinking of it as a liquid or, you know, just a bunch of sugar is oversimplifying it. Yes. And, and I think the original idea was the brain uses so much glucose, especially the frontal lobes. When they're active, they're, where, they're just using up all of this limited resource and therefore... Uh, you run out of it, and it, it, if you add some more back in, you can right you can, like a tank, go like longer. a fuel tank, yeah, like a fuel tank. And I think that just in every way that doesn't that's almost certainly totally wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I mean, just in the sense of like the order of magnitude of of the amount of 
glucose that we're talking about here is just way off. It would be uh, nice, though. I think that would be great if that's entirely the way that it worked, that you could just have as much willpower as you wanted if you just have a little more glucose. I think right. That would be cool. That would be cool. I mean, it, it's really it really gets to the same kind of framework as like the idea of that the brain is like a muscle. Mm-hmm. That if you exercise it for a while, it gets tired and uh, needs to to regenerate uh, that that resource its resources, which by the way might actually be true. Um, yeah. What do you think about? What do you think entirely... this is? A, what do you think this? I mean, because this is something you've thought a, a ton about. Is this a good metaphor? Is that a good way to think of cognitive training and something like willpower too, as a as just a single faculty of the mind, something that, was, that can that exercise was I was, more? I was wondering about that. I mean, that's a this is a topic that people have discussed at length uh, for I don't know, probably millennia, right? Can you improve your willpower through exercise by habit or repetition? Of, uh, of exercise of the will, does sustained it does concentration, it sustained inhibition of your impulses? Yeah, right. And I, I I don't have the answer for that. Certainly, if you if you train people on inhibitory tasks, they get better at those tasks. A lot of debate about what that means, and I don't know that it would really solve this problem here, even if we could answer that question exactly for for those tasks. Because again, I don't think those tasks that we're talking about the Stroop task or the flanker task, et cetera, are, are necessarily the same thing as what we're talking about here with self-control. Mm-hmm. So, but it definitely feels like if you get in the habit of doing things that are hard to do, but reap benefits later, that you get better at doing that. Does that mean that, that it's a habit because it becomes an automated, now you've uh, uh, automatized. Mm-hmm. The act of inhibition, if you will, right? Yeah. So it's not really inhibition anymore. Or is it that there's some sort of resource that you've strengthened, or maybe you've changed your values? I mean, all of these are different ways of thinking about it. Yeah, and it seems like it loses a bit of the muscle uh, metaphor a little bit, that what you're really doing is making stronger connections. You're not necessarily bulking up. It's really more about increasing links between concepts and connections in your brain than it is about strength and and sort of raw pure ability like that that's right that's right yeah it is and and so i think uh it's an analogy either way and Mm -hmm. i don't think we even know enough about how muscles work (laughs) for it to be a super perfectly useful analogy but it's also definitely the case that it's different let's talk about the process model itself. I'll jump into the way that they think about it and then maybe go back to the framework that they use. They conceive of this as switching from two kinds of goals, switching over from one kind of goal to another kind of goal. The first kind of goal is the have to goals and the second kind is the want to goals. This is exactly kind of what we're talking about, delayed gratification versus immediate gratification that people have these two modes and maybe from an evolutionary standpoint it's good to have a balance between these two things that you shift off from one mode of thinking into another mode of thinking if you do one for long enough you kind of slip into the other mode of thinking your motivation is changing over time in order to rebalance after you're thinking about all of these have to things for a long time and you get to these want to things for a while. And this is coupled with the idea that doing heavy thinking itself, just a high cognitive load, is something that people are become more and more reluctant to do over time. So the longer you're thinking hard, the more it feels like work and the more you just wanna stop doing it because it becomes aversive. Right, I mean, <laughs> there's no question that that happens, right? Uh, if you go into like a very long exam, for example, mm-hmm. you know, say it's like a three hour final, you come out of that final and you're tired mentally. Yep. You want to vet every, everyone will, everyone who I've ever talked to will describe it in essentially the same way that they're mentally tired. Um, now what that exactly means, we don't know, but that happens. You, you feel less like doing something 
mentally challenging after you come out of that three-hour exam. That, okay, that's, that's just more of an anecdotal thing, but it's, I feel like it's something that everyone listening probably can relate to in some capacity in their own life. So let's just take that for a given, right? That this is the thing that happens. Uh, you, you do something that's hard mentally for a while, uh, that, that's effortful, that you, that, and it becomes to, it feels like work and, and you want to do something relaxing or chill after that. And they relate this to an evolutionary perspective by just suggesting that this is a good strategy in general as your priorities just shift over from time to time. I really like the idea of just thinking about exploit versus explore mm-hmm. as two different strategies yeah. that one uses in their life, really. It's, it's, it's an evolutionary concept at the end of the day. You need to balance the amount of time that you're exploiting a certain activity or ability versus exploring new possibilities. You can trace it all the way back to, you know, to hunting and gathering. You know, you found a patch of blueberries that is super, you know, it's just a lot of blueberries there. Mm-hmm. And you, you're, you're so then you move it from you've explored. Now you're moving into the exploit mode. So you're exploiting this patch of blueberries. And it becomes a point of diminishing returns where there are still some blueberries on there, but it's getting to the point where you should probably spend more of your time exploring the new areas for different types of food that you can find. Right, because exploring could pay off in a big way if you find another rich blueberry patch and it could make your overall efforts much more worthwhile. Absolutely, absolutely, exactly. And then because there is this diminishing returns to the current activity, and, and at some point, you will actually run into some real trouble if you don't uh, spend energy on exploring new stuff. Uh, it becomes important to get in the, in the framework of, uh, of switching between exploit and explore. And I also think that it's true that people differ in their interest and willingness in doing one or the other. Some people love to try new stuff all the time and try out new, learn new skills constantly. Um, you know, try new ways of doing things all the time. And others just want to really, you know, that's the explore mode and they, they prefer that. And then others really want to spend more of their time exploiting their current skills and abilities. One of the ways that I like thinking about this kind of thing is what you choose at a restaurant. So how long, how long do you go to the same restaurant before you just order the same thing each time? Do you continue to explore the menu and figure out something new because you don't know if you're missing out if you if you don't try it or do you just you know that's what you want you're going to like it and you should just stick with that every time you go to the restaurant right and these strategies have different values for different people i think in in the in the case of you know this situation uh here of cognitive control or self-control you know the issue is what they're trying they're trying to draw a link between this of, of the fact that there's true that people switch between these modes, trying to link that to the idea that there is a, a natural equilibrium or balance between the two modes. And that when you spend so much time exploiting one way of doing things or one task mode, that you naturally become more motivated to, to move into an explore mode. And they're specifically trying to say that you're motivating uh, motivated to switch task priorities from have to to want to goals, which is somehow drawing a link between, I think, between exploit as being a have to situation and want to as being an explore type situation. And that's where I, that's where they start to, I think it starts to get a little, little dicey. Because as I said, sometimes people really like the exploit. And even if it's a task that's difficult, for example, you know, say, say someone's an artist and they just love painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may prefer spending all of their time painting, even though it's difficult and challenging and even tiring for them. And that's also how they make their money. So maybe, maybe that's, is that a have to or a want to at that point? It's definitely exploit, but is it have to or want to? I, I, I don't see that there's a direct mapping between exploit and have to and explore and want to. I mean, it doesn't seem like it in the berry example because right. it just seems like a, it just seems like a pure, Let's just maximize our overall strategy, which is to figure out how much time you do this and how much time you 
pick berries and how much time you explore for new berry sources. I guess it's similar in the sense that they're both switching between modes, but it is not clear that it's exactly the same thing. I get that, yeah. I, maybe the idea is that it's something that's conserved in evolution and it's uh, it's still a part of the same process. To me, I would think of the exploring as being the long-term goals and then exploiting is doing what you can with what you have right now immediate gratification you bought the chocolate chip cookies you know you went out you got a job to get the chocolate chip cookies you know you have a roof over your head you have all this stuff and now it's time to just huddle down and just eat a whole bunch of chocolate chip cookies right Right. But in terms of their model, I mean, I guess what they would say is, okay, the resource model says you're sitting there, you've got radishes and chocolate chip cookies in front of you. You have to expend energy to resist eating the chocolate chip cookies. And you're doing it because, you know, because you have to, you're told that you have to do it. And it's requiring this resource that's depleting it over time. Then when you go into a second task, we just have to, do, you're doing something that you have to do in this case. It's solving a, a, an impossible task that you have less resources to do it. And the process model, in the first case, you're motivated initially to work on this have-to task. But after a while, you're like, well, I've worked on this have-to task for quite some time. I'm going to switch to something that I want to do, rather. Mm -hmm. And so then you have less vigilance for, for the have-to task. That makes sense to me. But I'm not sure how it directly relates to exploit versus explore. It seems like, again, those are slightly different things. One of the ways they talk about this is that it needs several levels of explanation. Right. Uh, and that what they're trying to, I guess the account that they're trying to get at is what they call a proximate account, um, sort of the closest level look at things. So if zooming way out, think of this as an evolutionary account, then maybe it's kind of like a trade-off between exploration and exploitation. Then there's a middle account, which they suggest people f should find more evidence for. And then there's their proximate account, the switching off between these two types of goals, the have-to goals and the want-to goals. I guess they're suggesting that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive or they're not different or the same. They're just looking at it from a different level. Yeah. And I, I think it's cool. I mean, I think it's a cool model. I, I, I don't know it seems a little challenging to me to figure out how you would decide in an experimental way this one versus the resource model and really really feel like you definitely proved one or the other because in each case, you've got something that is happening for a period of time that is then leading to that thing happening less likely in the second phase. Whether it's because there's a resource that has been depleted, the tank is lower, or it's that you there are two competing processes that are out of balance yeah i don't know how you experimentally differentiate between those two things yeah they really just seem like two fundamentally different ways of of looking at something and and at least on the surface they both seem intuitively right that you know you can people use language to describe both of those things i'm exhausted i've got no willpower to resist anymore and also i'm tired of thinking too much i you know i just want to veg out Right. Uh -huh. And I think there's also this got me thinking when I started to, to get into this idea here, of the, especially in the explore versus exploit, this idea of satisficing. Mm -hmm. Right. The idea that like it, it's sort of it's sort of related to your idea of laziness, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is which That's is a new. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll be coming out with some papers on that. <laughs> I think that which is the theory of laziness. explanation. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I, and I, you know, because it, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective to work hard, but not too hard, right? Because yeah. working, putting, putting forth effort, however that's measured, does require resources. Those resources might be energy consumption in, 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 in tissue. It could be just time. You know, if you're working on something for a period of time, you're not working on something else. So there's a trade-off there. But of course, in the physical sense, we know that you do get, in fact, do get tired and you do need to sleep to, to replenish that. And I think there's probably something to that for cognitive activity as well, right? There can be pretty sure that sleep, a big part of why you sleep is, is to replenish cognitive and neural resources, mm -hmm. not just uh, physical bodily resources. Yeah. So it does make sense to stop doing work at a certain point. And the question becomes, 
what is that point? And so that's where I, I, I was sort of thinking that there was something compelling about the idea of, all right, I, I've been working on this for a while. I think I've done enough to kind of get by. Therefore, I should probably spend time doing something else, whether that be relaxing just to regain my energy or exploring a new activity that might be beneficial for me down the road. So I, I, I do feel like there's so many day-to-day issues that this does relate to, that sort of trade-off. I think that you know, there's this focused concentration. You can focus and do your work and really put your nose to the grindstone and get something done. But then afterwards, you might be more interested in something more creative, that you're kind of stepping back and looking at the broader picture and trying to figure out where to best, you know, where to best apply yourself for the next thing that you're going to do. I mean, you can see the kind of advantage that you might get from this trade-off of having the ability to focus and do hard work, but then making sure that you're reviewing larger options and seeing where, I mean, what should you do next? Where should you put your hard work next? And if, you know, if you exclusively exclusively do one or the other, if you're only, if you've only got your nose to the grindstone, you may miss out on a lot of opportunities. And if you're not doing any work at all, you're not going to have anything produced. You're not going to get anywhere, right? So this kind of theory seems like it can apply to all different aspects of life. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I was just thinking now about leisure time as well. Yeah. Uh, Thinking about that as like, also one of the roles of leisure is that it actually, because you're not focused on a specific task, and here now we're really talking about working memory, concentration, that sort of thing, less about inhibition. But you know, you're focused on a task, you're not thinking about other things, so you're not exploring the space of other things you could be doing that might be higher value. Mm-hmm. And so leisure time actually is a time that allows you to kind of reflect and be potentially creative. Uh, yes, in in unexpected ways, I I do feel like that is true, and you you can see it developmentally too. You can see the value of just I mean, this is sort of like play for kids. You know, they need I think that kids need to apply themselves to certain things, but they also need to step back and just play around and have sort of freedom to explore and survey this the entire situation. So I think, in a sense, you could fit play activities and work activities into this yeah i mean it's interesting when you think about it that way the this uh, this idea that like the willpower is this most important thing it's so like it's everything that's important for being successful etc cetera, etc cetera. maybe not maybe not right if you think if, if you think that this the application of willpower is the thing that's keeping you on task only hmm. right yeah um, maybe it's not it's not so important that it be applied so intensely so uh, for such long periods of time as being the thing that's key for success i mean certainly not being able to apply willpower when it's needed is 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 going to be bad so it's necessary but maybe not sufficient finding the right balance is more important than just maximizing the amount of willpower that you have that's right that's right well maybe we can take a little bit of a break right now All right, so the other main issue that we wanted to relate this to is the whole replication crisis in psychology or in the social sciences, which I think a lot of people might be familiar with, or if you're not, uh, a lot of experiments in psychology, and I think in particular in social Mm -hmm. psychology, have been under question as to whether or not they represent real effects. And this came about a few years ago when there was a giant effort to see what kinds of effects replicated and what didn't, a larger percentage of effects did not replicate. In other words, they couldn't repeat the kinds of effects that they found when they tried to set it up in exactly the same experiment. So people have been obviously concerned about this. Why are our effects like this being published? Are we are we crazy? What's wrong with psychology? Um, so this current paper and the studies that it's based on the stuff by Roy Baumeister with the initial ego depletion studies has been under question lately too. Right. So the idea is that 
uh, as Ralph mentioned, there's been a big topic lately in psychology and social sciences broadly that many studies that were really seminal in the past were not able to be replicated. When someone tried to do the same experiment that was as described in the literature, when they did it with the same number of subjects and the same setup, they didn't find the same results. There was a null result or a different result. And the thought is that this is a function of a number of different problems in the way that research is conducted in the social sciences. The biggest one being the, the sample sizes, the number of participants is too small in many of these studies. In order to see a significant effect in a small sample, you need a huge effect, a very large effect. And the probability that you find that effect is somewhat random. So if you get lucky, you might see a big effect in a small sample. But it's not the real size of the effect. The real size of the effect may be much smaller or zero. And you just happen to see it by random uh, chance in that particular setup in that particular on that particular day or that particular week. And then another factor which obviously people are concerned about is the idea that there may be some some bias that experimenters are bringing to the table that, you know, graduate students who need to be searching for jobs need to get a publication out in a, in a paper, which means they need to have an effect that exists. So they may be either intentionally or unintentionally selecting the results that give support to their ideas and that there might be a, a serious underlying issue with motivations in psychology such that we're rewarding certain kinds of studies that are really looking to find these effects and there might be something just fundamentally off about it. So in the in the original ego depletion study of Baumeister et al, as we mentioned at the beginning, they, they did actually four different experiments, but the most famous one was the chocolate chip cookie experiment. So I'll just repeat that briefly so that we're all on the same page. In this study, uh, there was a choice of radishes or chocolates on the table and students were taken in and they basically were told either to eat the radishes only or eat the chocolate chips, uh, chocolate chip cookies only. The students who ate the radishes were worse at sticking to a task later on that was basically solving unsolvable word puzzles. So they spent less time on the word puzzles than the students that either ate chocolate chip cookies or were the control subjects. So seemingly something like perseverance or stick-to-itiveness. Right, of. So the, exactly. So the, this, this active uh, application of what, what they might, might be referred to as self-control or active volition, uh, the idea being that that's, that's a resource that's somehow depleted. Then this was called into question from a number of different researchers, also supported by a number of different researchers, lots and lots of papers written about it. Most recently, there was a big, big effort to, the, the paper is called a multi-lab pre-registered replication of the ego depletion effect. And the idea here was that they wanted to bring together a bunch of different labs and pull together a lot of different subjects into a performant ego depletion study that would solve for this idea of bias because there's all these different labs, some who are pro and some who are against the idea that also would allow them to have a lot of subjects, uh, a lot of participants. So in the original uh, Baumeister study, there was, I think, 67 participants, which is a really pretty pretty good sized number for, you know, for the average psychology experiment, but it's really yeah, not. Yeah, it's, not not it's not out of bounds for, it's hard to, I guess, as, you know, if you're a lay person, it's hard to get a sense of how many subjects you should have, but that's certainly not out of the range of most psychology experiments. Correct, correct. And in order to, to expect to find an effect with 60-odd subjects, it needed to be a pretty big effect to see it reliably. So the idea was that some of the other studies that didn't show this in replication attempts maybe weren't set up correctly or maybe they were too small themselves, so they, they, they didn't see this, this effect that may not be so, so large. And so the idea was, let's solve this once and for all. Let's do a really big study. They ended up recruiting 2,141 subjects into an ego depletion protocol. However, this ego depletion protocol was not the chocolate chip cookie study at all. Uh, it was a very different type of ego depletion effect. But because other researchers had used a similar type of uh, paradigm and called it an ego depletion effect, 
these guys, Hager et al., are calling this study a replication. I, I, I have some problems with calling it a replication. But okay, so you, you think that they are not, so they, again, so this Gigantor uh, big replication study seems to have no effect of ego depletion. In other words, suggests that ego depletion is not something that's super robust. That's uh, right. Very small effect, and it was not significant. But this, the task that they did in this study was was quite different, and, and I think in important ways. So the basic task was there was, you know, against so the sequential task setup. So you do first you do one task, and then you are measured on the second task. And you have two versions of the first task. One is the depletion task, and one is the no depletion task. In the case of the depletion task, participants, so in, in each of these cases, what you were doing was you were looking at a computer screen, and you had to respond if a word had an E in it. So for example, if the word eat came on the screen, you'd press the button. But if the word bat came on the screen, you would not press the button. So this is supposedly compared to the radish slash cookie choice. Right. So exactly. In the no depletion case, you're just always pressing whatever there's an E word. So eat, horse, etc. In the depletion case, you have to inhibit some responses. So whenever the, the word has an E in it, but the E is next to or one letter away from a vowel, then you do not press the button. So you, it requires inhibition. So you would know because you're you're used to looking you're looking for the E, you're pressing on E, but now if the E is next to an A or an O, for example, then you would not press the button. So the word eat now you would not press on eat, but you would press on horse. And then the follow-up task is uh, another task that involves inhibition. I won't get into all of the details of the follow-up task because it's it's a little bit complicated. But basically, again, it's you're looking at a computer screen, you're pressing buttons to some things and not to other things. You so have to do something that you have to inhibit. You're in in some cases you have to inhibit a particular response. Yeah. So in 2,000 subjects across 23 labs, we don't see any effect of not pressing on an e word when it's next to a vowel on subsequent inhibitory control task performance. And they're calling that a replication, uh, a failure to replicate the basic ego depletion effect. Yeah, there are certainly important differences between the two. So if you don't have real cookies and real radishes, then you don't get an effect. So it's definitely, a, it definitely feels like a watered down version of the original task. Right, exactly. I mean, I think this this is also kind of indicative of what happens in cognitive psychology all the time and experimental cognitive psychology. You know, you get more and more refined about the task designs. You, you're like, well, you know, this is controlling for this, mm -hmm. you know, potential uh, confound, and pretty soon you're you're pretty far away from the basic original concept of what the thing that actually draws interest to it in the first place. Exactly, exactly. So you know, understood that it's it somehow is a more refined or controlled environment, but it somehow misses the point of the original idea. And it definitely it, doesn't feel like, e it doesn't feel like an ego depletion task. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, I guess, you know, if you go all the way back to Freud, and you're really just talking about the id versus the ego, does the id even care about pressing a button on the computer screen for for no reward? It doesn't even seem relevant. So it doesn't seem like an ego task at all. And so, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, versus, you know, really preventing yourself doing something that you want to do. This would be the kind of task, I think, that if you had, a, if there was a measurable effect, it would be interesting because it would demonstrate that something like this depletion is widespread. But I guess if you don't get it, it's hard to know exactly what it means. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, you know, this idea that if these two tasks are tapping the same mechanism and then that doing the first one first makes you less good at doing the second one, then it would suggest that there was some either an interference or a resource that was being depleted, whether we call it ego or whatever, some resource was being depleted or interference, but we don't see it. So but you don't see it, so it's hard. It get it's hard to it's hard to say something about you know willpower or 
ego depletion if you if you're not seeing it you don't know exactly what it is that you're not seeing <laughs> yes <laughs> yes exactly i mean i i think I, I think the interesting thing the interesting takeaway here is that like it, it is hard to even say what a replication is sometimes and that there is a very real problem of replication in psychology and there's also a very real problem of of construct validity that like are you actually even measuring the thing that you're arguing about this gets into some deeper uh existential questions about psychology it's it's a it's a tricky thing because uh we in experimental psychology have to rely on kinds of effects like this that are not necessarily directly measurable and when we talk we talk about attention we talk about uh, emotions. We talk about all of this mental stuff that we don't really have a direct measure of. And it's a problem in psychology as a field. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the problem that originally caused behaviorism to take over the field. So in the early 1900s, people felt like psychology wasn't necessarily scientific enough, that the only thing worth doing is is having some something observable that you can measure. Don't worry about what the mind's doing, just study behavior. So that was the mode of psychology for, you know, a good 60 years or so and um, sort of sucked the life out of actually studying mental processes or how people actually think. But, you know, we're in some ways we're back to if we want to ask the interesting questions about issues of the mind, about mental processes about consciousness about uh any you know judgment decision making anything that's related to the way that we think we have to accept in a way that we're we're constructing these um processes we're not directly observing them in the same in the same way that um chemists are observing a molecule or you know physicists are using particle particle accelerators to directly observe something so that's right and, and and it doesn't mean that they're not useful constructs either i mean we i think we identified that that the idea of willpower is a useful construct it's something that if you don't have a word for it or a language for it you're missing something important mm -hmm. because uh a lot of things that we do and and to move forward in the world require willpower in some form or fashion require us to 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 not do the immediate gratification thing, but to rather work on something that maybe reaps benefits in the long run. Yeah, it's a useful shortcut that people can use to describe things in a relatively straightforward way. Um, you know, if we had to describe everything that we did in terms of what molecules were moving around, it's unhelpful to describe things in too low of a chemical or physical way um, when it's plenty useful for us to use a term like willpower. Yeah, and you can talk about whether someone else has a lot of willpower or, or not much willpower. You can also talk about whether someone's willpower has been reduced for whatever reason or like they, they've lost it for whatever reason. Um, uh, these are interesting and useful concepts, potentially. Uh, I think you'd be losing something by not allowing yourself to, to go there. You may lose some precision by using terms like willpower, but I think what you gain is, is um, more than worth it. So then I think in terms of wrapping it up, where do we feel we stand on this? I mean, I think that's something that would be, would be good to kind of come to some conclusion on. I mean, from my perspective, I definitely do get the sense that there is something to the idea that when you work on something that requires a lot of intentional effort, where it's not just automatic but rather you're somehow exerting effort to, to keep yourself on task, to keep yourself doing something, that you subsequently have less desire to do that kind of thing in the next period of time. That you, you in some sense, want to do something. You want to work hard on a task that's challenging, but then you want to chill for a bit. And so I feel like that, that observation I, I feel pretty good about. And I think these experiments, some of these experiments speak to that con the concepts but I, th I feel like honestly these these paradigms are not really super satisfying in terms of answering the question of of whether this observation is something that we can back up empirically i don't feel like any of these experiments really really solve it for me i mean they all feel a little bit off they're not 
measuring the right thing or they're they're not done correctly they're too small uh they're not well controlled so it's 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 that situation that happens a lot in psychology where you've got an intuitive concept that's that feels useful Mm -hmm. but it's difficult to map it to like a really good experiment yeah it's difficult to measure exactly what you're talking about and withstand all the criticism that comes from being a little bit imprecise that's right so i think you know the, the the final point maybe on this is that you know, this doesn't happen to robots. This doesn't happen to robots. <laughs> Are we talking robopocalypse already? I think so. I think so. I mean, because think about it. Robots, they don't they don't get tired. If they have fusion generators, they don't get tired, but if they have batteries, they their batteries run out. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yes. But do you think it actually takes a robot more energy to do the thing that they don't want to do? than the thing that they automatically want to do. Well, do you program robots to have things that they want to do immediately versus things that they want to do later in the long term? And do you make a trade-off? Do you build a trade-off into them like that? Yeah, I mean, it depends how autonomous you want them to be. You know, if, if you want to build the, the, the robot with, with a will, then you kind of have to have something like that. I don't want an autonomous robot. I think robots should do it. We, uh, <laughs> I know this is going on record and our robot overlords are going to be hearing this and punishing me appropriately but <laughs> i feel like robots should be doing what we tell them to do i, I totally agree we don't give robots leisure time to think about these sorts of things right exactly so they just run down their battery until they're done the task and then that's it of course then we're not the only ones working on this the other teams working on this are are, are, are not going to follow that rule so but if any, if any robot engineers are listening to us, do not build leisure time into robots. And I think that's pretty much, that's going to delay the onset for at least five or 10 years of the robot apocalypse, which is enough for me. Yeah, I, well, it, we'll, we'll be getting on towards the end of our useful lives by that point anyway. So that'll, that'll be good for us. Yep. Thanks everyone for listening.